I work through the passage. And I really think this is a wonderful message for us today. Yeah, let's, let's pray for the kids as they head out. That'll give some time for parents to settle kids in and stuff like that. Heavenly Father, please do be at work in our church family today. Um, we pray for those kids who have gone out, that they might really benefit um, from that sort of focused input from their uh, leaders. We pray for the kids that are in church here, that they also be encouraged, hearing your word and learning more about you. And likewise for us as adults, keep working in our hearts and our lives. May your spirit turn us towards you. Um, and particularly this morning, teach us what it is to have gentle joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, gentle joy. That's really uh, the, what, what I think holds this chapter together. And I'm really convinced it stands in contrast to the society we live in. Because I reckon if you want to pick two key aspects of our society, we are encouraged in dissatisfaction and in aggression. Uh, we're encouraged in dissatisfaction. It's, it's built into our um, commercialism. It's the fact that every ad on TV is encouraging us to think that what I currently have now isn't enough, it's not really adequate, and I need that something more. And so whether it's the, the toilet cleaner or the line of clothing, um, I, I'm currently using the wrong stuff, I need to find the new thing to replace it with. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's the whole culture of rights in our society, that I have a right to this and a right to that, and therefore if it's missing from my life, someone is responsible for fixing this. Uh, that, that, that I shouldn't be satisfied with the status quo, and I should expect the world to come and deal with it for me. So we're, we're dissatisfied, and then that leads us to aggression. That's my best sort of word. Um, we are told to pursue avidly the, the lifestyle, the life that we deserve. And, and it, at times, it's, you know, to a point, you, you can afford to ignore the people around you if that's what you need to do. Um, it, it's even the, the point where in our political discussion, it's not enough to advocate your political viewpoint, what you think would be good for society. It's that the people who are suggesting anything else, they're evil. They're not just a different view, they are working you know, basically for the powers of evil as far as some, some of the discourse goes in our society, some of the political debate. You're either the good guys or you're the bad guys. There's not a thought that we could just have two different opinions about what might be good and how to get there. We are in a dissatisfied and aggressive society and into that context we have Philippians speaking to us. And it is a call to gentle joy. Hear it again in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, in some ways you come to this last chapter and it feels a bit of a grab bag. It seems a little bit random as to the topics that Paul picks up. And it's true that you know, I've been emphasising 127, chapter 1, verse 27, sort of really set up an agenda that flowed through chapters 2 and 3, this call to unity, standing firm for the gospel, standing together for the gospel. And it came back in chapter 4, verse 1, it's called a stand firm. And then we actually saw this specific situation in Philippians, in Philippi, that, that's going on where you, you, uh, Syntyche and Euodia, they're at loggerheads and they need to come to terms with each other. That has driven a lot of this letter. And yet, there's a deeper theme 
that sit behind, sat behind it, and that is the theme of joy. Think back. You may want to flick back in your Bible. Chapter 1, verse 4. Paul always prays with joy because of the Philippians and their being partners in the gospel. 1, verse 18. Paul rejoices because the gospel is preached no matter what. 2, verse 2. Paul's joy is complete if the Philippians are united in the gospel. Uh, 2.17, Paul rejoices to be poured out as a drink offering on the service of the Philippians. 2.29, the Philippians are to welcome Epaphroditus with joy. 3 verse 1, Paul again says to rejoice and in 4 verse 1, the Philippians are Paul's joy. Whatever's going on in this book, verse 4 is no throwaway line. And I really think it's this this theme of joy with gentleness that captures a a much deeper issue in this book and explains all the things that are going on in this chapter, where we're called to a deep confidence in God and His care for us that leads to a joy and the ability to be gentle towards others. So how about we look at it? I've got three topics that are sort of in this last section. There's prayerful confidence, there's thinking and doing, and then there's contented generosity. And behind them all is this gentle joy. So let's get into it. First of all, Paul encourages the Philippians to prayerful confidence. Don't worry, pray. And the moment I hear don't worry, of course, that makes me anxious because I'm awfully good at worrying. (laughs) So it's worth just taking the moment to see that in chapter 2, verse 20, if you just flip back in your Bible, 2, verse 20, the same word for anxious is actually a good thing in this context. So... uh, describing Timothy, Paul says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern, the word is the same as for anxiety in chapter 4, for your welfare. Not all anxiety is bad anxiety. There are good and proper things to be worried about. But the point here in chapter 4 is that God is near. And so when you have a worry, there is someone to approach, someone to speak to about those worries who will hear and care. And so that changes what we need to worry about and it changes what we should do with them. We, we, we plead, we petition, we ask God, remembering how much he's already done for us. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, Paul doesn't promise the Philippians that everything they asked, God will deliver. He promises peace. Uh, Prayer builds this confidence in God and it reminds us that God is for us. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, by praying we express these two great truths about God and who He is. We recognise that God is powerful. 
there is no issue, no matter in my life and in this world that is beyond God's reach. I can pray about my concerns for my health. I can pray about my concerns for my family. I can pray for my politicians and my nation. I can pray for the world politics that are going on beyond my reach. I can pray for Christians in other countries. There is nothing in this world. I can pray for the end of secularism and for Christ to be known in this world. Nothing is too big because God is powerful. But the second trait truth is that God is loving. And so there's nothing too small to pray about with God either, is there? There's no part of my life that I I need to deal with on my own, that if it's worrying me, I shouldn't bring it to God. He sent his son to die for me. He loves me and he will listen. God doesn't just own the cattle on a thousand hills. He cares for you. Prayerful trust. Um, It was a a while ago um, when I first became a Christian, shortly after I got involved in a a scripture union mission, um, where you sort of share the gospel. Uh, Often they're on beaches. This one was in Forest Lake in a suburban mission. And um, so I ended up being director of this mission. And so I was responsible for, for raising the funds to make the mission happen. And we did so much stuff. So we ran a movie night. We ran um, car washes. We were working really hard. And I felt the weight of responsibility to, to get this money so that this mission could happen. And it was really keeping me up at night. And then one day I, I was sharing this. We were visiting my grandmother. By this stage, her Parkinson's was quite advanced. She was in bed. Um, but we would go and visit her. And I told her all the stuff we were doing. And she said, oh, you're all so creative. You work so hard. In my day, we would have just prayed. And I was adequately rebuked. (laughs) Prayerful trust. This is the God who is in charge of everything and he loves us. So gentle joy also involves thinking and doing. So thinking is not a surprising thing that, that Paul says here. It's been a big emphasis in his letter that he wants... The, the Philippians to think the same, to think the same as Jesus and the way he thought as he came and gave his life for us. That, that he held up Timothy as an example of good thinking because he was concerned for Jesus and his interests, not just for his own. Thinking's been a theme, but the word here is actually a different word. It, it's, it's the idea of reasoning through someone, mulling it over. This is the stuff to contemplate. And Paul says you've got to curate your internal world. You've got to be selective about what you think. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's interesting that there's been some really big issues going on in this church that Paul's been dealing with. So um, there's this division that seems to be threatening the church. There's the Jewish legalists on one side and then the the Roman sort of permissiveness on the other, pulling at the church and its culture. And then there's the hint of oppression, that there's somebody opposing the church. And yet how has Paul dealt with that in this letter? Not by negative instructions, but by positive examples. He held up Jesus and his, his willingness to give, him, give himself and come to earth. He pointed to Timothy and to Epaphroditus as positive, positive examples himself, that he counted everything else rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Paul has so often pointed us to the positive, the good examples. 
And he says, look, just keep looking for people to imitate like that. Verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Think it, do it. And I really love that last verse because, again, it echoes verse 5, where the Lord is near, the peace of God will be with you. And verse 7, because it's the God of peace. Peace of God. This is the sort of thinking and doing that produces gentle joy. It is driven by confidence in God. And finally, the Philippians are encouraged to contented generosity. Because if there's one area that we know how to worry about, it's money, isn't it? I always worry about having enough money to get food on the table and to have the roof over my head and that bit of security for my future. And instead, Paul says, find your security in God. So, so the whole issue comes up because Paul wants to thank the Philippians for a gift they sent with Epaphroditus. Have a look at verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. So, just like everyone else, Paul has bills to pay. But Paul wants the Philippians to think well about their giving. So, on one hand, he he wants them to know he's not desperate for their gift. His confidence isn't in them, it's in God. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul is this pattern of gentle joy, of confidence that God will provide. But at the same time, Paul does want to encourage the Philippians to be generous. It's a good thing they did. He mentions that this is something they've been doing for ages. Chapter 1, he said they've been partners in the gospel from the first day. We hear more about it now. Listen to verse 14. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. He he loves the generosity. He loves the support they have for the work of the gospel. So how does he do this? How does he encourage their generosity without sounding like he's desperate? He does it by emphasising what God values in their generosity. That the reason that generosity is good for them, not for Paul. Verse 17. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. So I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. What a connection to make. He connects it to the Old Testament sacrifices. And one of the big things in the Old Testament the people of Israel had to learn was sacrifices weren't about earning your way with God. They weren't trying to appease God and, and, and win His favour. Sacrifices were a thankful dependence on him. They were recognising the generosity that God had already shown to his people. And likewise here, our generosity, it's not about buying God's favour. You don't give to God's work to earn his way. 
the Philippians can be generous because God has been generous to them. Jesus is the measure of God's generosity to them and and they have all these riches in Jesus. Listen to verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus is God's standard for generosity. So, So this is a tricky area. It's tricky for me to talk to you about it, uh, contentedness and generosity, um, because we're very good at expecting it from others. It's much harder to expect it from ourselves. I've had uh, a few conversations now with, with Christians, young Christians particularly, and, and they feel that Christian artists really should charge money for the music they produce. And they feel that they sh- that should be imposed on the Christians. And I keep having to say to them, but that sort of takes away the generosity, doesn't it? <laughs> Like if, if someone's put in the effort, they sort of have their right to be paid, but they may choose to be generous. And so let me just draw out some reflections on generosity and contentedness for us. Uh, the first thing I want us to notice is that contentment and Paul's contentment is not just an example for people in ministry, it's actually an example for all, everyone. So I say that because of verse 9, you remember? Um, we're supposed to see the pattern in Paul and put it in practice. Or back in chapter 3, verse 17, the Philippians are to imitate Paul. We're all to seek this contentment that Paul puts forward, knowing what it is to be in plenty, knowing what it is to be in want, finding our satisfaction in Jesus. But we're also all to be generous. And Paul was generous with how he ministered the gospel. He didn't seek money for his preaching. It was normal at that time to do that. And he celebrates that the Philippians being generous. He encouraged all the churches to be generous. So I want to encourage all of us to be generous. Uh, I want to encourage you to, to be part of the giving in this church. If you're new to our church family, this is something you might want to think about. That to, to see the gospel go forward through our church family, one of the ways you can do that is to give towards it. Um, I hope that uh, you might be giving elsewhere. If you're regular giving to our church, I hope you're giving to other uh, causes of the gospel, other people in need. It's a good thing to do, isn't it? I hope that you're giving and reviewing your giving, remembering that inflation kicks in and so every now and again you've got to go back and check how much you're giving and does it actually reflect the real money value these days. I I hope that you're making changes when you get a pay rise or you get a pay cut, that you feel free to do that because it's about generosity, not, not obligation. But one thing I do want to say is don't do it out of concern for my family or, or for Josh's family. Um, I, I think that's really clear in this passage. Be generous for the sake of the gospel. Uh, can I say, I'm really grateful. Uh, so our salary, my salary is set by the denomination. They sort of take, take it against what a teacher would receive and that's sort of where they put it. And because that's, that's a fair salary and then, you know, in addition, the government has, does something in terms of tax that makes it even better... Um, I feel like we are well, well cared for. Like, I'm not saying it's extravagant, but we are really grateful. We're content. Um, but we're the same as you. We actually need to be encouraged in that contentment. And so as we're being reminded to be generous, and that's something my family needs to always keep wrestling with, I also want to encourage us to contentment, to receive what we get and make the most of it, to know how to be in plenty and in need. And I hope as a church family we can support each other and be walking together in in making the best of those moments. Generosity and contentment. Being partners in the gospel through what we receive, um, 
but not under obligation because we're grateful to God. Okay. So, lots of helpful things in this passage, but I want to suggest to you that sitting behind it is this fundamental confidence in God, isn't it? The capacity to be prayerful, the capacity to be generous, finding those things that we can contemplate and, and know that they're worth thinking about. It's all about knowing God and His goodness and being able to trust that. And I want to suggest that's the heart, not just of this passage today, this gentle joy that bubbles out. I think that's been the theme of this whole letter. So think back, chapter 1, Paul rejoiced in prison because God's power was working everything for the glory of the gospel. This deep confidence, it didn't matter that he was in prison, God would be able to work for his glory. Chapter 2, God's selfless son came from heaven, gave his life for us. What a reason to be confident in God. Chapter 3, Paul counts everything lost, garbage, compared to knowing Christ because he has everything in Jesus. God can be trusted. We can be so confident in him. The challenge is simply living out that confidence. Uh, So I'm going to end with an illustration from Eugene Peterson. Um, He was out walking one day and he saw a a family of swallows and the the adults were teaching the the chicks to to fly. And so what they do is they sort of nudge the chicks down the end of the, the branch and as they got to the end, they'd sort of be pushed off and as they plummeted towards the lake, somewhere between top and bottom, they start to flap their wings and they take flight and it, it was all just there. But he said there was one chick in particular that got to the edge and when it got nudged off, it hung on for dear life. So it ended up hanging upside down with its talons holding on to the branch and so the adult sparrow came and pecked at the talons until the bird dropped. Because the adult knew something that the chick hadn't learnt yet. It was made to fly. It was made to fly. And likewise, Peterson says, we were made for generosity. We are made to trust God in everything and to take the things we have and use it for others. So Peterson writes, birds have feet and can walk, birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely, they can walk, they can cling, but flying is their characteristic action. And and not until they fly are they living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. And giving is what we do best. It is the air into which we were born. It is the action that was designed into us before our birth. I think it's really helpful. We were made to work the garden, weren't we? To serve the earth and take the things that God had made for the good of each other, for the good of his creation. And then we were remade, reborn. How? Because God gave his son for us. Generosity is just built into our DNA. It's just that sometimes we don't realise it. So prayer is in our DNA. I hope you... We're going to mention in a moment that there's a a prayer night tomorrow night in Mark Drama. If you could come along and pray for us sharing the gospel, that would be great. Generosity is in our DNA. I'm encouraged by what I do see. Just, Just keep encouraging each other in that. Let's live a life of gentle joy. God is more than enough. We don't have to be aggressive. 
We don't have to be dissatisfied. We can find gentle joy in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. Thank you for the deep confidence we can have in you and in your character. Please keep teaching us to live that out. Help us when we need to be like that little sparrow and let go of the branch to discover our wings. And we pray, Heavenly Father, with a deep gratitude to Jesus and for all he's done for us. We pray in his name. Amen.